Good morning from Washington, D.C., exactly 103 days before the 2020 general election that will decide control of the United States House and Senate and, of course, the White House. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm the director of congressional outreach here at FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome you to our virtual roundtable, one of a series of discussions of important issues sweeping the country, many of which are impacted by the continuing COVID-19 pandemic. If you've missed any of our previous virtual roundtables, we invite you to visit our website at usafmc.org sounds. That's usafmc.org sounds to catch up or subscribe to our podcast. Today's discussion is interactive and we'd like to invite you to ask questions you may have. Simply move your cursor to the bottom of your Zoom screen and press the Q&A button. You'll be asked to register your name and your question. If we call on you, you'll be recognized live on audio only to ask your question of our panel again simply press the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen at any time during the call to answer your question. Today's topic speaks to the heart of our nation's history. Since March 4th, 1797, America has seen a peaceful transition between the presidents of our nation. The choice of president has been a democratic process, inclusive of various parts of our country, with the process becoming more transparent and more inclusive as time has gone on. For those granted the right to vote in our nation, it's an important right and a responsibility. For those denied that right, it's been a brass ring to be fought for, grabbed, and cherished in our country that is governed of, by, and for the people. Now with the advent of COVID-19, that most treasured American role of citizens choosing our leaders has changed. Observers and experts have been concerned with the November elections since quarantines and social distancing began. In Wisconsin, the primary election in April saw a record number of absentee ballots cast by mail in a judicial race, with nearly a million, million ballots cast by the Postal Service. The election was marred by tallies that took days and eventual complaints by hundreds of voters that their ballots never arrived. Meanwhile, public health experts are calling for as few in-person votes to be cast as possible, avoiding the indoor static conditions that encourage transmission of COVID-19. At the other end of the spectrum is President Donald Trump, who tweeted on Tuesday that large-scale mail-in voting would result in the most corrupt election in American history. That is the scene for today's panel. Both of the members of Congress are somewhat unique among many of their colleagues. They were elected in states that mandate vote by mail for most all voters of that state. In 2014, Congresswoman Diana DeGette, the co-chair of FMC's Congressional Study Group on Japan, was re-elected to Congress for her 10th time. That year was a first for her, however, as Colorado's vote by mail requirements went into effect. In a state known as the gold standard among vote by mail states, in last election, Colorado saw the second highest voter participation in the nation. Congressman Greg Walden has only been elected to Congress once through in-person voting. In 1998, when he was first chosen to represent Oregon's second district, voters also decided to make Oregon the first state to create a mandatory vote-by-mail system. For each of his next 10 campaigns, Congressman Walden has been returned to Congress through envelopes returned by Oregon voters in the mail. This year, ballots bearing his name will be the first in the nation that don't require return postage. Our moderator today has a background almost as unique as our two members of Congress. Trevor Potter is head of the Campaign Legal Center and before that was general counsel to Senator John McCain's presidential campaigns in 2000 and 2008. However, despite his expertise on campaign finance, including writing several books and testifying before Congress, he's probably best known for being part of Stephen Colbert's Super PAC, Americans for a Better Tomorrow. As the lawyer for Colbert's semi-serious Super PAC, Potter helped the comedian illustrate the role and the shortcomings of the campaign finance system. Through their efforts, the segments won a Peabody Award for Excellence in Reporting. It's an honor to have him as our moderator today for what we hope will be an interesting discussion on voting amidst a pandemic. Trevor, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you all this morning. 
as I think we all know, uh, voting in this country is primarily a uh, state and local process. Uh, there are some uh, federal guidelines to it, particularly in terms of constitutional rights on who may vote. But the system is run by the states, and that means it's run in at least 50 different ways uh, across the country. Uh, some states, uh, including the, the two for our Congress people today, uh, vote primarily by mail, and they're going to tell us a little bit about how, what that actually means and, and how it works. But what I wanted to note, following up on those opening comments, is that uh, the attention focused on vote by mail this year comes from the unique situation we're in uh, with medical issues with voting in person. That won't apply to every state or every locality, but we've seen certainly in the primaries uh, uh, pretty much disastrous situations uh, where uh, there were stay-at-home orders, people were being told it was not safe to go to crowded polling places, and yet it was they were late applying for absentee ballots or the ballots were slow coming to them or they were concerned they hadn't mailed them in time to get back and different states have different rules on when they have to be returned. So what we are seeing is a great increase in interest in absentee voting. And uh, at the same time, uh, there are a number of states that do not have the experience in terms of, of time and, and effort and money put into absentee voting that Oregon and, and Colorado have had. So part of this is less an abstract discussion of which system is better and, and more a discussion of what do states that, that haven't done a lot of this before do between now and November uh, to get ready for it. As a country, we voted uh, partially absentee going all the way back to the Civil War uh, when troops in the field in the Union Army uh, were given the right to vote from the, the field because they couldn't get home. And we voted in the 1918 pandemic. Our, uh, Ronald Reagan signed a bill that made it easy to vote overseas if you were an overseas citizen. But still, for many people in this country, uh, the example of Colorado and, and Oregon is, is going to be new to them. So let, let me uh, uh, start uh, maybe uh, with what I think is the, the first state to do this, uh, Congressman Walden, can you tell us a little bit about how it actually works in Oregon? Sure. Yeah, Trevor, thank you. Uh, be happy to do that. We started back in 1981 in local elections, and uh, it took about 19 years before it became ubiquitous for uh, statewide elections uh, and candidate elections. Uh, so we started back in 81. We learned a lot along the way. I was in the state legislature uh, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when some of this expanded. And I always remember the county clerks in my big sprawling district saying, you know, we can't run two elections at the same time anymore. It's hard to get the volunteer poll workers uh, because, frankly, 50, 60, 70 percent of Oregonians were voting absentee ballot by then. And we didn't have to have an excuse to get an absentee ballot. Some states still require that, as you know. Um, we didn't have that. So we were sort of trending toward absentee balloting. And frankly, from a, a financial standpoint, it made sense to, to move forward. From a workforce standpoint, it made sense to move forward to vote by mail. Now, I will tell you, we also put really strong security provisions in place, and they've evolved and improved over the years. By January 31, uh, each county has to submit to the state their security plans. We have a statewide database, so you can't vote in multiple places. 
our signatures accompany the return envelope, the ballot envelope, if you will. Um, there's, you put your uh, ballot inside one envelope, you sign and attest that this is your ballot and you followed all the rules. It's a class C felony if you don't. That signature then is matched against the statewide database of your signature by your county election officials. And I can tell you it works from personal experience. We were in the radio business for over 20 years. My wife signed all the advertising affidavits and her beautiful signature devolved into a line. And the county clerk called her at some point and said, we have received a ballot that's for you. The signature does not match up and you have to come down and prove this is your signature, which she did. Um, we've had very, very few cases of fraud uh, or alleged fraud, I think four or five in, in the last election um, and they were dealt with. And so we're set up to do that. We do it well. Uh, I would like to, you know, maybe take issue with what Paul said in the beginning. I think Oregon's the gold standard, not just Colorado. Uh, but anyway, I think both states do it well, frankly. Congresswoman Jeanette, uh, tell us how hard was it for Colorado to transition to this vote by mail system? You're the state that's done it. Uh, you and Utah are the ones that have done it most recently. Uh, was it confusing for voters? And and, and as a voter yourself, what happens? Do you go to your mailbox and, and open it up and find a ballot in it someday? How does it work? You're on mute. Yeah. There you so, are. So, so um, I, it, I agree with Greg. It, it took us some time to evolve into this situation where we have all vote by mail. And, and it, well, I don't think it was particularly confusing in the end to people because we had evolved to that situation. We started out like most states having polling places and, um, and then, and then you, you could get an absentee ballot only if you were going to be out of your uh, polling area on election day. You had to attest that you wouldn't be there. Then eventually we evolved to the point where you could get an absentee ballot for any reason. And then uh, gradually people were encouraged more and more to request absentee ballots. And then finally, as, as, um, as you said, in 2014, Colorado went to all, all vote by mail. And now, um, interestingly, I don't know if they do this in Oregon, in Colorado, every Democrat gets a, a, in a, in the primary, gets an absentee ballot from the Democratic primary. Every Republican gets a Republican ballot and the unaffiliated voters get both. They get the Democratic and Republican ballot and they get to pick which one. They can't pick two. They have to pick one or the other. If they send both in, then they're rejected. But um, now the vote, it didn't take very long at all for the voters in Colorado to get used to uh, voting by mail. What happens is uh, about three weeks before the election, the ballots arrive in the mail and if you, and it's all, it's, it's as Greg says, it's computerized, it's, it's very rigorous. So when my ballot is mailed from the election commission, I get an email saying your ballot has been mailed mm. from the election commission. And then, and then after I fill my ballot out and vote with the same types of precautions Greg talks about, and then when I send it back, then, um, 
I get an email from the election commission saying your ballot has been received by the election commission. And then, and it's in processing. And then after it's processed, I get an email saying wow. your ballot has been processed. So, so it's a very um, rigorous system. And, and, and as, as you said, Colorado had the second highest turnout in the nation in 2018. So not only is it very safe and convenient for voters, it really encourages turnout. Now, I'll just say one other thing, you know this, I think, but, but the studies have shown that, that vote by mail really doesn't benefit one party over the other. Um, a lot of Democrats worry that because because Republicans tend to be more organized and regular voters, that vote by mail will benefit them. And then the Republicans worry that the Democrats will, uh, who, who tend to be uh, people who leave it to the end for whatever reason, won't vote. But in fact, it, it all comes out in the wash and, and both parties uh, uh, really benefit equally from it. Do I, either of your states have a deadline that the ballot has to be received by election day by the election officials, or does it just have to be mailed by election day? Well, in Colorado, it has to be received by election day. And when we see what's going on in New York right now, where they're still counting the ballots from the primary election, I, I absolutely think that needs to be the rule. I, I agree with Diana on this. Um, I think in Colorado, it has to be there by 7 p.m. election night. In Oregon, it's 8 p.m. when our polls close. It's not by uh, when you dropped it in the mail. And we can still vote in person at certain right. election places. I think you can do that as well. Yeah. And we have drop-off places. So I always just say there's a drop-off place, I don't know, half a mile from my house. So I always yeah. go by and drop it in there. By the way, I take a picture of myself dropping it in there. And of course, we put that out. But um, it works. And, and I agree with Diana. I, I think um, in these situations where they either go with a postmark, it, it lingers forever. Um, yeah. Or as in New York, um, it, it continues to go on. And, and I think that really causes people to question the integrity of the process because you, you're so used to election night being election night. Maybe a few of these races go on. But my gosh, when you're going on two or three weeks and you're counting ballots that show up in the mail a week or two later, I, I just, I, I think that's a, not as good a way to go as we go. I, I, I really like what Colorado does on the email notification process. We don't do that in Oregon. And that's where states can be great laboratories yeah. in this space. So a, a question that, that comes to mind on that is, how, when do your states start counting the ballots that have been received. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, after 8 p.m. election night, they open them, they certify them, they stack them, they have them ready to run through the counting uh, devices, the machines, uh, but they don't count until uh, uh, they until after the polls close. The second piece is they do put out data each day on how many ballots have come in. And so you, you can see the, the trend line. So researchers can go back and figure out turnout models and all of that. And it has evolved over time. I, I want to say in the early days, people turned in their ballots very early. There was a surge early on. I think that's sort of faded now. And it's, you get spikes over the weekends. Um, but otherwise, I think, you know, human nature kicks in and we kind of wait. And, oh, yeah, I better get that in. And I, I, yeah, it's the same in Colorado. They have it all ready to go. And then after the polls close at 7 p.m., you'll see when you're looking at the election results, 
you'll see very quickly, you'll have start getting results in from counties uh, because they've counted the, the they've started counted counting the ballots. And so, so we actually, it, it's interesting, we actually get our results quite quickly. And I think that's true with all the states that do vote by mail. If you look at, at the other states who are doing vote by mail, the res results come in quickly. So Congressman Walden mentioned the machines. I, I take it you, because you vote entirely by mail, your ballots all look the same in the mail and you must have machines that are calibrated to what, feed the paper in and count it quickly? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you fill, you know, it's like taking the SAT, you fill in a little circle and then they just read it. And, 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 you know, there will be some ballots that are spoiled or some, you know, some that they have to review and it'll spit them out and then they can review that later, which is, which is why in close races, you'll still have to have human review of some of the ballots. And, and you know, I, Trevor, if I could make one other comment going back to uh, primary ballots in Oregon, independents are not allowed to vote in the primaries of the parties. Um, the parties make that decision. Um, and so if you're, re we register, not all states register by party. We do, Michigan doesn't. Um, and so in Oregon, you get a Republican ballot or you get a Democrat ballot, depending upon how you're registered. Now, I was talking to a colleague and friend of ours from Michigan who said they don't register. So you get a ballot. If you vote for a Republican on that ballot, it has all the candidates in the primary. And then you also vote for the, a Democrat on that same ballot, and they're all listed. They throw out that vote because you can only vote one party, but all the candidates are listed on one ballot. That has to be enormously confusing and disenfranchising. Yeah. So, you know, this is where you don't want to force this on states. They've got to figure this out. And, and some of them just aren't ready. Right. I mean, that's the problem we're facing is ready or not with, with COVID, people really want to be safe and they want to vote at home, or at least many people do. And they're in states that aren't ready. I think one of the things that's happening in New York uh, is that they don't have the high-speed machinery to count absentee ballots because they weren't set up. The numbers I've seen are that in the last election, the last primary election, they had 119,000 absentee ballots. This year, they had a million seven. Right. And without the high-speed machinery that your states have, they are literally doing that by hand. Uh, and as you point out, the ballots are, have been arriving because their system is postmarked by election day. So it does really slow things down. We have a question uh, from former member Martin Frost. Uh, Martin, would you like to go ahead and unmute your microphone and, and ask your question? If not, I can ask it for you. But if you want to unmute and ask it yourself, you'll get it right. You hear me? Yes. yes. Speak up a bit. My question is for states that this year convert generally to a uh, vote-by-mail system and haven't done it previously. How hard will it be for them to set up a signature verification system? That is, the compare the signatures. You, one of you just mentioned about your wife's signature. Compare the signature on the ballot with the signature on your registration or some other document. How hard is it going to be for them to set that up and how much additional resources will be required uh, to if they have a large influx of ads of vote by mail for the first time? Well, I think I, Martin, it's good to hear your voice. I, I think that um, that most of the states agree 
that they are going to need to be prepared for a lot more absentee voting in the fall. Just look what ha just happened in New York, as Trevor was saying. And uh, so, so one thing that the secretaries of state of, of a number of states I've talked to have said is if they start now, they'll be able to ramp up the, the, the they won't be able to make a perfect system like we have in Oregon and Colorado, but they'll be able to ramp up the system so that they can have the personnel and begin to get the machinery, but they need to start doing it now. And, and one thing um, in, the, in the CARES Act that Congress passed was some money, and then in the HEROES Act, which has passed the House and in negotiation in the Senate, there's $3.6 billion in that bill for um, assistance to states to, to update their election systems to be able to handle the election in November. I know that's under negotiation right now between the White House and the Senate um, Republicans, and I'm hoping maybe Greg can give us some, some idea about what the Republican position is on aid to the states for ramping up their election system, because irrespective of of what happens with COVID, we're still going to have a lot more absentee yeah. ballots. We, we are. And, and I know in Ohio, another statistic uh, for, for our viewers here, in the 2016 election, there were 477,844 absentee ballots. In the 2020 primary election, there were 1.975806, uh, almost 2 million absentee ballots, uh -huh. and 4,500 people never got their ballots because you had to sign up, they had to mail it back. There was this two or three prop step process. So uh, looking at the scope of the problem, look, I'm gonna be real frank with you. I don't have a lot of confidence, no matter how much money we send at states in August, that they can have this ready to go and upgraded by September if they decide to dive in. And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Almost 10 years ago, the federal government sent my state $85 million to upgrade our software so we could issue unemployment checks. That money is still in an account. They finally, about a year or two ago, decided what to do to upgrade the software system, and they hope to have it done by 2025. So I, I've been around state government, and I think Diana has as well. I mean, we, we dumped 60 million into an upgrade of the DMV system and finally pulled the plug because they couldn't get it right, and they were just throwing money hand over fist. So this is where I've been very cautious, not necessarily about fraud, although we have to, we have to always be, be vigilant on that front. But the notion that in 103 days, and we, whatever we negotiate here work out, and I'm all for helping the states. And by the way, we sent them without any caveats other than unbudgeted COVID-related expenses. My state got $1.3 billion, some of which they could apply to this. I just don't think physically you could go in and create a brand new statewide electronic database with signature verification and all. That's what I struggle with, why we should not federally mandate every state has to do vote by mail. I think we should assist. I know we do that for uh, security issues uh, with intelligence sharing. I think we've given the states a lot of money and we will give them more and we need to do whatever it takes to not only have, have the absentee slash vote by mail work, but also have the in-person voting places function as well. Because yes. I think both of us have that in our states. And with COVID, with, with spacing and distancing and PPE requirements and everything else, sanitation, um, we, we need to be helpful there as well. But at the end of the day, as you said at the beginning, Trevor, these are mostly state and local 
uh, issues, uh, elections, and responsibilities, but we stand ready to help. As you know, go ahead. I was just going to say, just to clarify, I don't think the federal government should mandate a particular system to the states either. But I do think we should recognize that the states are, are that, that irrespective of what, what we say is people are going to want to vote by mail or absentee. And so we need to help the states be able to do that as quickly as possible. And Greg's absolutely right. We're going to have to think about how we support states that are still going to have in-person voting. Some of those lines that we saw in the spring at, in some of the uh, voting places in Michigan and other places were shocking. And we can't be having that in November when the weather turns bad. We may be having another spike of COVID. We're going to have to figure out how to help those states. Uh, and, and, and really, the states will have to take the lead on it, but we can give yeah. financial support and technical and I think, support. And I think in that space, Diana, the best thing they could do is have more polling places with more polling could be, workers. Could be, but that takes more Break people, into, more, sure. you know, that, that takes more resources. Yeah, I hope they're planning for that. Well, as, as Congressman Walden noted, that one of the advantages Oregon has found is that over time, their costs have gone down because they're vote by mail and there are relatively few stations that they have to have workers at. The problem this year for all the states that have normally 10 or 15 percent of their voters voting absentee is they're going to have to run two parallel systems. They're going to have a big push for absentee with all the mail and the postage and the machines and the counters. Plus, their people are going to expect to be able to go to their normal polling place uh, and be disoriented if they go and it's closed. Plus, what we're finding is a really shocking number of poll workers are not working this year for understandable mm -hmm. reasons, since they tend to be older, many retirees, and they're, they're being told medically they shouldn't go out. So the states are, are really under pressure to recruit more, more workers and train them. At the same time, they're, they're running these new uh, systems. As I, as I look at our chat, we have a comment uh, from former Congressman Jim Colby, and I, I will summarize it because he says that Arizona is very similar to Colorado, uh, and that even though it is not officially vote by mail, 80% uh, of the ballots are now being cast uh, by mail because it's a no-excuse state and it has a permanent advisor, uh, absentee list that someone can sign up for, and it just comes uh, automatically to you. He says that in Arizona, the votes must be received by the time the, the polls close on a election day, um, even though they will start counting them after that. Uh, former uh, Congressman Jim Slattery has a question. Uh, Jim, do you want to go ahead and ask your question? If you unmute, you can do that. You're on, Jim. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, yeah, yeah I, I'm just curious, what states are struggling the most? Where are the big problems in the country? And, and uh, Trevor, it's great to see you and Congressman Walden and Congresswoman get. Thank you for your interest and leadership in this, because I, I think it's a huge issue and that we just cannot afford to have chaos in this election this fall. And But uh, I'm just concerned that a lot of states that are not really focused on this, what can they do in 103 days? To your question, Congressman Walden, or your comment, but um, where's the problem? You know, what states should we really be focused on?
Yeah, I'm not sure we really know, but clearly we've seen some, some bad outcomes, as, as Diana mentioned, in New York. Uh, we saw some problems in, in Ohio, but I'm sure they're not alone. Um, and, it, and as we all know, in the beginning of the pandemic, when we were in lockdown, uh, you saw dramatically lower turnouts in voting because people were supposed to stay home, and they did. Um, now, as we go into the fall, I, I don't think we have a clear understanding of what we're going to see. We, we see the uptick in cases. We see Americans do what Americans do. They want to be free and out. <laughs> and now we see the uptick. So when that combines with flu in October, uh, uh, what, what happens then? And so I, I think all states are going to have new pressures other than perhaps ours. Even ours will have them, though, in terms of workers uh, in the county courthouses and all the counter ballots, I think. Um, I think we're better off because we have vote by mail um, and, and, and have perfected it uh, and continue to, to improve upon it. But I, I think it's from one end to the other. Every state's going to be a little different here. You know, and, and, and I think uh, all of us can agree on a bipartisan basis that what we really want to see in the November election is, is an election that people have uh, faith in the integrity of the results. That's right. And so one, one thing I really think that we should do, I, I agree with Greg, I think there's, there's probably issues across the country, some of which were manifested in the primaries and some, unfortunately, you know, if, if it came out in the primary, then you can at least say, like in New York, you can say, okay, we need to get more people on board to help count these ballots that come in. We know we're gonna have a huge increase in absentee balloting, but, but there's other places where, where we may not see the troubles. I think that that it would be really um, beneficial from a from a um, uh, a a process for integrity to figure out the the states that will be sort of swing states either in the presidential or the Senate elections and make sure that they have good balloting systems. Uh, looking at you here, Florida, you know, um, I mean, some of the election issues that they've had in Florida over the years, just in general, Broward County and some of the other counties, um, I, I think that it would be really beneficial to, to the election process for us to make sure that they have good systems in place and that we can have, uh, that we can rely on the results. You know, one other thing, Trevor, uh, uh, there have been five states that have decided to, to go to vote by mail because of COVID, basically, in this 2020 cycle. One is yet to uh, determine how, what the deadline's going to be, whether it's election day or postmark or whatever. They're still figuring that out. Two have said election day, the ballots have to be in, and two have said postmark uh, by election day. <clears throat> so as states are, are rolling out, they're all doing it a little differently, and some apparently haven't figured out uh, what they're going to do. But I, I'm with Diana. The most important thing we have to do is make sure every vote counts, every voter has a chance to vote, and that we maintain integrity in the process and keep fraud out of it. And I think it is really critical to get to, to Jim's point. The more we can reduce chaos and uncertainty, the more we'll have uh, the, the sense that our elections are run fairly and honestly, and we can accept the outcome. So there, there are a couple states that, I think there are about five states that currently do not allow what they call no excuse absentee voting. And they have announced that fear of dying by going to a crowded poll place is not an acceptable medical excuse. So Texas and Tennessee, uh, I think Kentucky are states that at the moment you don't have a, 
a right to get an absentee ballot uh, without being uh, a doctor's order that you're already sick or you're out of state. So they're fighting that in the court. Another issue that I want to come back to that you've both spoken about is the uh, signature, because that is a key element of uh, ensuring that the vote that arrives has been cast by the person it was mailed to. Uh, some states, when there's a question about the signature, they have, at least in the past, simply not accepted the ballot, meaning they've thrown it away. They have not notified the voter that there is a question. And I know uh, Congressman Walden said he'd had a, a personal family experience where uh, his wife got a phone call saying, we have a question about your signature. So obviously your state follows up with voters and, and has a procedure. Is that true in Colorado too, uh, Congresswoman? Yes. Yeah, what, I mean, what they'll do is um, if they have questions about the signature or any other irregularity in the ballot, they will just set it aside and then come back to it later if, if they need to. So, um, yeah, same here. They're treated as a yeah. provisional ballot. Uh, the issue is dealt with one way or another. I, I can tell you when I was the majority leader of the Oregon House, um, there was a, a Democrat county commissioner running for state rep. His wife had had back surgery. He took the ballot to her in the hospital filled it out for her and forged her name on the ballot. He was caught. This was back in, in the uh, 90s, early 90s. It, it, the county clerk spotted the difference. He fessed up, and it was a felony. Yeah. Now, the, the political tragic irony for him is part of his work detail duty to work off his problem included um, tending to the tables at the Republican fundraiser in his county later on as part of the jail work crew, which must have been quite, <laughs> <coughs> um, well, we'll just leave it at that. So the that, punish, that punishment, yeah. that, that, that's, worse than, that's worse than federal prison. Yeah, and I was the guest speaker too. So I mean, it had to be, I mean it's all bad all the way like around. That's like maximum security. Yeah, yeah, I did, I actually felt, but, but he, you know, and he, I'm, I'm sure thought he's there with his wife, but that's how strict it was in his own county. The county clerk said, that's not your signature. It's not your wife's signature. He admitted he had forged her signature. And when you attest, it is, a, I believe, a class C felony. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't want to ignore what I think I can safely describe as the elephant in the room, uh, in all due respect. And, and that is the president's uh, continuing attacks on vote by mail as uh, fraudulent, corrupt, uh, resulting in, in millions of illegal votes, saying that mail-in ballots are sent to every living, breathing thing, including dogs. Um, I, I don't want to get into the, the partisan side of it, but what do both of you, you say to voters who are hearing this and, and thinking that this, this is going to be a real problem uh, for the country, that these ballots can't be trusted? Well, I, I, I mean, I, you know, the president himself has voted number of times by mail. So I think that, that there's no empirical evidence that there's voter fraud by mail. People, people may, I mean, we, we saw, we saw a situation where was it in North Carolina where, where poll workers were coming and taking ballots and, and marking them that can happen that, I mean, voter fraud can happen any way you look at it, and you have to put provisions in place to, to fight against voter fraud, but all of the data shows 
that vote by mail causes no additional voter fraud, especially when you put provisions in place. And I think what we need to do as the federal government working with the states is make sure whatever they put in place for this November will have provisions uh, to, to preserve the integrity of the process. But, but I, I, think that's ju I, I just think that's an unfounded concern. Yeah, I, I think there have been cases where, you know, you've seen press reports of ballots sent out uh, to vacant houses, that sort of thing. And the question is, does somebody scoop up those ballots that are, are, are in empty mailboxes and then vote them? If they do in a state like Oregon, it is a felony. And they're, they're putting a signature on there. They can't have any idea whose signature, what that signature should look like. We did have a situation after the last election, again, a handful of where people went out and collected ballots, which you can do in Oregon, but we have a requirement. They have to be turned. If you take, if I take, collect your ballot, Trevor and Diana, and, and say, I'm going to turn it in. I now have an obligation under law to turn it in before the polls close. There was a situation where somebody did not turn in some ballots. It was just a couple, but you know, one is too many and they were, they were dealt with. Uh, and, and so we've got, but over again, over time, we, we've tried to, as I think Colorado has, identify where are the gaps, where are the vulnerabilities, and try to close those and, and have strict enforcement. That gets back to, I think, probably where we all are here is mandating this on a state that's not ready could lead to the kind of fraud that I think we would all object to. Uh, going forward. So I, I think you have to have these safeguards in, in place. You know, also, but there's also, a lot of fraud that goes on today in elections. I headed like, like Martin headed the, the D trip. I headed the NRCC and I was astonished, especially coming from a state such as Oregon at some of the reports of voter fraud that's out there, the walk around money, the collections that I, I mean, it is, it is stunning to me in some states how loose it is. Were you going to say something? Oh, I, 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 was, I was just going to say in Colorado, we also allow people to collect ballots, but they can only collect a certain number of ballots and they're under obligation to turn them in and, and so on, just, just like in Oregon. And it's a felony in Colorado too. Uh, so, I mean, we, we need to address voter fraud at every level. But as I said in my opening remarks to this question, there's really no evidence of increased voter fraud in vote by mail, especially when administered properly. Well, I think the key takeaway from what you both said is that states have systems in place uh, to review absentee ballots and uh, check the signatures. Some states require that the voter on the, uh, in addition to a signature, put the birth date. Some states uh, have a barcode so they know that uh, the exterior envelope has, has whose vote that is supposed to be. The inside one is secret, but the outside, the outside right. one, they can track do that. Yeah. So states do it. I mean, clearly they're going to be under a lot of pressure this year if, unlike your states, they're only used to doing it for a relatively small number of ballots and suddenly they've got a lot. But the key thing is they do have a, a system. And, and as you both point out, uh, when people try to do something illegal, uh, it is a felony, and we know about it because they get caught, uh, right. and that does help. We have a, a question from former Congressman Colby, and uh, Congressman, if you want to unmute your microphone and ask your question, it has to do with postage, uh, that would be great. Thanks. Sure, yeah. I, I, I think at the outset, 
somebody said that their state was the first to go to not requiring any postage. I don't think Arizona ever has. Are there states that actually require the voter to affix the postage to send it back? Because it seems to me that would really dampen uh, the number of getting back because some people just don't keep postage stamps at home. And it would really, you set it on the table and you say, I'll, I'll get it, go to the post office and get a stamp for it. But in Arizona, it, the, the county pays the postage for it. Yeah, Jim, uh, Oregon just went to that. I, uh, we weren't the first state, um, but I know we, we just went to uh, uh, no postage required. It's a, it's a BRE in effect. Uh, prior to that, it, everybody had to put a stamp on. I don't think it adversely affected the return necessarily because our turnouts were, were pretty high. Um, and you could always drop it off in a, a, for free at a, at a lot of drop-off places around town. So um, I, I think uh, we, we have gone to uh, free postage now. Yeah, and we still require postage, but like Oregon, we have a number of places. I have a church just a few blocks from my house where we where we drop off our ballots, and um, but we laugh because I think we're going to have to go to the no postage uh, system like Oregon has because uh, millennials they they I'm gonna I'm here to tell you I have two of them. They, they've never bought a stamp in their lives. They, and they, I don't even know if they know, you know what, how to write a letter that's not online. So, so what you really want to encourage younger voters to, to fill in their ballots and send them in. And even though there's places for drop off, uh, and even though we haven't seen, you know, we have the second highest voting percentage in the country, still you worry uh, about people being chilled from returning their ballots because they don't have a stamp. So two questions come to mind listening to that. One, let's just talk for a moment about the post office because inherent in what both of you are saying is your post office uh, services work fine. If people mail ballots, they get there by election day. Your post office is used to doing this. Uh, I understand that states work with post offices and prioritize mail-in ballots and they have big print on the outside that says ballot, so the post office knows what they are. But on the other end of the scale, we saw reports out of Wisconsin, which was unprepared for a great volume of mail, that there were baskets of ballots sitting around in post offices after election day, unclear whether they were ballots going out to be voted or ballots coming back in, but they were still in the post office, not in the election offices. And there is uh, a concern that the post office, which says it's running out of money uh, and does not have yet the loan that Congress authorized it to have, uh, will be understaffed in, in November. I think the new postmaster put out a notice saying that because of their financial troubles, they should not work overtime and uh, shouldn't incur extra costs. Uh, how do you know anything about how your state works with the post office or how other states uh, are dealing with with these this uh, new burden on the post office? Um, I'm, I'm not sure in terms of how the, my state works with the post office, to be honest with you. Um, I, I do know we've done it, They have to appreciate the volume in the sense it's generating revenue for them uh, in, in terms of first class mail or what, however it's treated. Um, and so I, but beyond that, I, yeah, we I, haven't I run mean, into that problem. So I, I think, I, I think that, that 
the post office um, has, I, I think that we need to really look at, at strengthening the post office in general and the election is only a part of that. Since the COVID pandemic, I, I would say the number one, I, I don't know what your, your phone calls are, are, it'll be interesting to see what the d difference between the Democratic offices and the Republican offices are, because the number one issue people are calling my office about is the post office. People are worried about, about the integrity of the post office because they're all stuck in their homes. Wait, you know, waiting for the mail for whatever they've ordered or whatever, and so, so I think we we do need to make sure that the post office has the resources and the personnel to be able to handle the election. But it's part of a much bigger issue we need to discuss. Yeah, I, just to finish up on that that point, a number one issue. It is the unbelievable incompetence of the state government manage the unemployment claims. We still have our, our caseload. Half of all our caseload now deals with unemployment claims unmet, uh, going clear back to March when we passed the CARES Act and the bonus payments. They're not even sure they can get the bonus payment out ever, ever. And so now they're going to issue checks and just send them out. Um, and literally, it has become half of our caseload. It's the, it, and people are just crying on the phone. And it's a state issue. We're working with each one of them to try and bust through the bureaucracy. But this gets back to my earlier comment about the 85 million the state, the federal government sent out to modernize that system more than a decade ago, and they've yet to do it. It's just incompetence. I agree with you about the caseload is, is the unemployment, and yeah. it's the same in my office too. And our caseload has doubled too. But, but the calls that are coming in yeah. are around the post office. Yeah, we're not having that. Interesting. That's interesting, yeah, because I have yeah. a very rural district yeah, yeah it stretched the Atlantic to Ohio, right. and uh, we're not we're not getting post office calls. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the other question that came up as I was hearing you talk is you both talked about lock boxes, uh, places that voters drop off ballots. Uh, I'm a Virginian. We don't have that. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, tell me how it actually works. I mean. Uh, wh where are they and, and why are they secure? What, are, aren't you worried that somebody's going to drive by in a truck and take it away? Have to, tell us more. Well, in, in, I mean, in Colorado, it was probably the same thing in Oregon. Um, P, uh, organizations can volunteer. And where we take our ballots, as I said, is a, a church a few blocks from our house. When we go there, they, they actually have poll workers with the box. So it's not like there's just a box sitting there. And so we, we drop our ballot in and then we take our, Greg and I take our pictures so we can put it on our social <laughs> media. Right. And then and then we get our little I voted sticker because that's still very important to us. Actually, our, our I voted sticker comes with our ballot. So, oh, so yeah. it's an extra bonus. But then, then I would imagine those poll workers take the box with them when they leave at the end of the day. They don't just leave it sitting there. Yeah, I, I don't know all of the, the different ways the counties operate. I know in my home county, um, it's actually uh, an old payment slot from a former telephone office where you could drop off your payment. Uh, so it's in a brick wall and you drop it in. It's actually now owned by the courthouse, the county. 
And so it's all interior. You, you push it in from the outside, it drops in like a, a bank deposit or a payment deposit box. Most of them, I think, are at the county courthouses uh, is where you drop them off. So there, there's a full safe a chain of a control involved in, in Oregon to safeguard the ballots. But the difference I'm hearing, which will be relevant this year, is at least in, in yours, you're outside and you're sticking it into a slot in the building. And in the Congresswoman, someone has to go inside and interact with people to do this? No, no, it's in a parking lot. It's, ah. it's, right, there. it's right there in the parking yeah, lot. Yeah, I think they yeah. could be flexible, too, where, yeah. where it is inside. I'm sure they could, you know, work out something. Yeah. This is unfortunately, I'm curious about it because this is another one of those issues where uh, it, there has been uh, controversy in lawsuits. The uh, Secretary of State of Pennsylvania announced that for the first time they would have these uh, receptacles, which were described as secure, and you're explaining how in your states they're secure that people could drop them by. And, and I think the announcement was they were going to put 70 or 80 across the state. And uh, he has been sued. Uh, uh, the Republican Party of Pennsylvania is saying he doesn't have authority to establish these drop boxes. Uh, so, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of this it, it has become subject to a, a lot of, uh, of, of back and forth. And so knowing that- well, and States. Yeah, and, and Trevor, knowing that, um, I think there was, a, I think there is an issue to be discussed here about who and how do you decide, who decides and how do they decide where additional polling stations or drop boxes are located. Because if I just put 70 of them in urban areas and none in the rural areas, mm -hmm. I can affect mm -hmm. the outcome of the election. I don't know what's going on in Pennsylvania, but I know there was a dispute on the special election in California where additional polling opportunities were made available in one part of that district and not elsewhere. And so I think it raises for either side, depending upon who's in control of what election process, there needs to be a fair, impartial process and decision-making Or I just, you know, if I'm, if I'm in Oregon and, and I'm a Democrat, I just put them all in Portland, you know, because they vote 80, 90% Democrat or, or whatever. If, if I wanted to have a different effect, I'd put all the additional ones out in, in the most Republican towns or, or rural areas. And so I think there, again, I, I, I think we need to protect the integrity of the election process and make sure people feel it was done fairly. Well, and, 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 you know, what, what, Greg, what you're saying, I, I know you, you, what you're saying is you don't think that these boxes or how, however, should be distributed according to political bias. Right. But, but, if you had if you had an some kind of an impartial panel or whatever and they decided you needed more in one place or another because of sure. voting patterns then that the, the most important thing and i think we will agree on this is that that you should tr try to do whatever you can to give people unrestricted access to the ballot box so that they can vote and and you know because from a democratic side what we've seen in some in some states uh is is uh fewer polling places in heavily minority areas so that it makes it more difficult for people to vote and you've seen some of the lines that's not people right standing either. for hours and, and that's and that's not right either so so you just have to have an equitable system yep. and someone has to figure out 
Maybe maybe they can put us in charge. Greg and Diana can. We get it solved. <laughs> well, at least, I mean, look, at least we could agree yeah. that everybody should have access yeah. to the ballot box. And okay. nobody should have to wait in line all day and all night. This isn't no. a Bob Seger concert, you know, I mean. You, right. You or, or a have... Donald Trump rally either. It's yeah. not a Trump rally or a Bob Seger concert. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you shouldn't have to wait forever to vote. And, and that's where I think states and, and, and let's face it, okay, so we say states, but it's really our counties that run the elections. And so this is where the state secretary of state, lieutenant governor, whoever ever has that jurisdiction needs to be working with the county to say, what do you need so that people don't have to stand in line in the snow right. and the rain and whatever else all day to cast their vote and still not be done by eight o'clock? That should never happen. Right. And I think we recognize that the local election officials you know, are going to have a very hard year doing their best. Um, you know, if if they don't have poll workers, they're going to have to consolidate polling places, which will raise exactly the issue you're talking about. Where do they put them in a way that is right. as nonpartisan and fair? If if they they take the one out of the black area of town because they say they can't staff it and they put it that's across right. town where there's no public transportation, that's going to hurt the, the black community. And, and right. they're going to have to do something if they don't have the workers. This raises a question, it's a, it's a slightly 30,000 foot question, but both of you have talked about the, the importance of making decisions on these issues in a way that is, is fair and nonpartisan. Uh, when, I, uh, when I was on the Federal Election Commission and, and advised new democracies in Eastern Europe on how to run elections, one of the things we said was, you should have a nonpartisan election body. You shouldn't have a political party uh, running your election system. Of course, that's not advice we historically follow in this country because we have elected officials who are of one party or the other, uh, who are the secretary of state or the chief election officer. Uh, do you have a, I mean, given our system, how do we ensure that that these decisions are made on a, a nonpartisan basis? Well, I would just suggest that you have to follow the rule of law and that you put these provisions in law. And then the law trumps any individual of either party if it's fairly enforced. Um, and, and that's where I would go with this. And, and frankly, Trevor, I, I love what you're saying. It just doesn't work in reality because who appoints the people on the election panel. Do they run for office? You don't think there won't be political views behind those? I mean, you look at the, the, you flip Supreme Court judges in Pennsylvania and they write the congressional maps. I mean, and it's very partisan from our perspective. And, and you've had others in other states have gone the other direction, even at the court level. So I don't think you get politics out, politicians out of politics, um, but if you can get laws in place that do their best to guarantee um, uh, fairness, then those can, be, those can be more easily enforced, I think. And I think our states, when it comes to vote by mail, have had that clear focus of how do we keep these elections fair, open, honest, believable, maintain the integrity, no matter who's in charge. So, so you know, Greg and I both come from Western states. And the Western states really do have a tradition, a historic tradition of having open 
systems. When, Greg, when you were talking about walking around money and some of the, you know, some of the old machines and so on, we don't have that. For the most part, we just don't have that in the West. And, and the political tradition that Greg and I grew up in, it, it, really, um, it, it, it really is based on integrity, openness, access uh, for both parties. And, and so what do you do in a place where, where you have, you have um, experienced corruption? Greg's right, you have to try to vote, you have to try to write voting laws that, uh, that encourage openness, transparency, and access. And then you have to enforce those laws. And I, I think the other thing is um, shining the light. In that case I mentioned in North Carolina, it, when, when it came out, I mean, it's against the law to, to forge ballots. It's just against the law. Ballot stuffing is, is even in North Carolina, a felony. And so, so when you have good government groups who are watchdogs shining the light, that's when those practices come out and that's when you can begin to eliminate them. But I think Greg's right, you have to write laws that encourage that openness to begin with. Those seem like really good concluding statements for this conversation. Uh, and we are just about at the end of our period. Is there anything else either of you would like to say as we wrap up? I think we've covered a lot of territory. Great. Well, yeah, I thank you. And yes. I will turn it back over uh, to Paul if he has any concluding words for us. Thank you, Trevor, and thank you all for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Again, if you've missed any of this discussion or any of the others, you can join us at usafmc.org sounds to subscribe to our podcast and get discussions like this every week. Thank you for joining us and have a great day and a great weekend. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.